0: Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to the Financial Services Club. I'm Michael Minelli. I am the executive chairman of Zen Group, and it's my delight today to welcome Robert Rubenstein. Robert, hello. Welcome. Hi. Uh, Robert's a dear uh, friend of ours for many years, uh, and Robert is actually calling in uh, from Amsterdam, which is where TBLI is located. Now, today's program is uh, focusing very much on triple bottom line investment, and as ever, I would like to thank the sponsors who make all of this possible uh, to all of you. A sincere thank you. Uh, and the agenda today is, as ever, fairly straightforward. Uh, we're going to have approximately uh, 25 minutes from Robert. He has a lot of slides to go through, so you'll have to pay attention. Uh, there's a lot of good material here and well worth watching. And I will be taking questions uh, from, from you, the audience. And I would just point out the question bar Um, Is there if you don't want to be identified by name, just let me know Uh, I can still ask your question I'll be sweeping up uh, those questions in a group and handing them over to Robert If You've got a particularly detailed question that we don't have time to cover today uh, It will still uh, be recorded against your email and Robert and or I will get back to you as appropriate now Robert, uh, you founded uh, TBLI uh, many years ago. You've been one of the big proponents of the movement for all sorts of good things, uh, ESG, impact investing. Uh, may I say the floor is yours.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming and I want to thank uh, Michael for making this happen and also all of the sponsors who are supporting us. I'm very jealous. Um, so we have a Oh, there we go. Okay, now it's working. Thank you. So, um, I'm going to try to go through briefly what has happened in the last 25 years that has been driving ESG and impact. So, for those of you who are not familiar, my wife likes to say TBLI makes dreams come true, but we're not in cosmetics. Our work is mainly to educate. The asset owners and managers, and create a financial system that works for all, not only investors. So, what we'll here are some of the things we'll cover: definitions, where are we? The last 25 years, what has been achieved? Has it worked? Consequences, and the opportunities, and what are the forces driving it? So, very much how people look at ESG and impact determines their perception. Do they see it all as a risk, or do they see it as an opportunity? I know that's the same with traditional financial sector, but it's particularly clear in uh, sustainability. So for those of you, here are some definitions that we're using uh, as to what is ESG, or extra financial investing. The definition that we use is the last one, that ESG, uh, while you're maintaining profitability, do your products or services worsen, maintain, or improve the social-environmental balance? Most companies worsen, the vast majority worsen the social-environmental balance. Very very few maintain, and an even smaller group improve, but if you're able to achieve that maintain or improve level, that means you're very energy efficient, you use very little resources. You have very little turnover, you don't spend as much money on HRM and hiring the best employees and keeping them. You have very few clients. So in the end, the profitability is higher. So it's just a very pragmatic way of running your business, which is why it has attracted so much attention. When people understand what it's about. To be a, oh, here we go. So what we've had to deal when we started 25 years ago, there was no infrastructure. There was no PRI. Oops. Sorry. Yeah, there was no uh, PRI, uh, EBPAs, CDP, et cetera. So the challenge was basically how do you convince the financial sector? We found the best way to get buy in is focusing only on these three elements uh, um, self interest, opportunity, and money flows. By doing that over and over again, you will get behavioral change. Surprisingly it's quite easy, but we still have a lot of myths about impact so charities, zero returns, no deals, money losing, no scale, too risky, bad management, and no track record. Um, this I hear over and over and over again, uh, and people believe these myths, which they are, but at the same time, they also believe the investment myths that all investment managers hit their benchmarks, and all private equity funds earn 30 uh, percent, which is. By far, not true. And hedge funds always earn 30%. So I think we have to challenge all myths, not only the impact myths, which are not true, just as these are not true, except that this leads to massive money flows to fund managers that don't deliver. And then what I heard constantly, over and over again, over the past 25 years, ESG data is not good enough. ESG data is not good over and over and over again, yet no one ever questions the financial data. The financial data is far worse. If you look at the financial crisis that we went through, uh, Enron, Parmalat, WorldCom, the China hustle, which is kind of like the big short in real time, trillions lost, not a peep not a sound out of anybody saying, oh, the financial data is not good enough. And there's never been a single company gone bankrupt on poor ESG data, but we keeps saying ESG data is not good enough. And if you look at the BP disaster, it was the ESG analysts that predicted there was going to be a problem because BP was spending 8% less on uh, maintenance. So um, I think we should get real and challenge those and also let's have the financial sector start getting their act together and have information that is accurate. The big macro driver is really this. This is the, this new economic model of China's growth of 6 to 8 percent, if it's true, meaning they reach U.S. consumption level 2031. And they might need 60 to 80 million barrels of oil a day at this level of inefficiency use of resources, then you look at grain, meat, coal, steel, paper, all the other commodities. And then you add India. and then you add the other three billion in emerging markets and us, then you can see that this linear growth line is not possible at this inefficient use of resources. So uh, what do you do to keep the line going up? You can have conflict for resources. You know investment community doesn't like war too long. And what is the great opportunity? Massive resource efficiency, which is what sustainability is about, doing much more with much less. This is what has gotten a lot of attention from the financial sector, the massive growth of the emerging markets uh, from going from one meal to two meals a day, tremendous pressure on all commodities. So again, to kind of recap, we have the emerging market resource constraints, resource efficiency, uh, wealth holders trying to integrate philanthropy and investment, the financial crisis and aftermath, $325 billion paid out in legal fees and fines when the financial sector says ESG is risky. It's almost comical on I mean, a galactic scale to say that with a straight face when you pay out so much legal fees and fines doing the other stuff. Staff and clients are looking for a little bit of regulation. Stakeholder pressure, of student and employees demand on employers and endowments, wealth management engagement with clients around impact. One of the best ways to engage with your clients is around impact, even though it represents a very small percentage of a portfolio. It's where you get a smile. They can't really engage with your clients when share prices are down or oil is negative. And basically, people are realizing the self-interest and seeing clearly the business case. So, if we look at the big milestones, what has happened in the last 20, 25 years that has really driven carbon tracker is probably one of the most important developments. Freshfields One and Two was um, the law firm. Freshfields looked at the legal, uh, the laws around the world in developed in developed markets and seeing it's because fiduciary said we can't do ESG or impact. We have a fiduciary duty to maximize returns. Freshfields report. One and two came out to the conclusion there are no specific per, uh, prevention from doing that. In fact, not looking at climate risk uh, is showing that you're not fulfilling your fiduciary you duty. The PRI, which now has tens of trillions of signatories, the Equator Principles Carbon Disclosure Project, and the Montreal Pledge, which is asking asset managers to, agree, to disclose their uh, environmental or carbon climate risk in, the, in their assets. I'll focus mainly on the uh, carbon tracker here, because this is very important. What carbon tracker did is, they said, okay, let's say we have to stay at two degrees, which we probably won't, but let's say we have to. If we have to stay at two degrees, what is our carbon allowance? How much carbon can we burn to stay at two degrees? So they came up with a figure, I think it was 85 or... 88 gigatons. How much have we burned? Take that off. How much do we have left? Okay, 56 or 58 gigatons. How much is in the ground? 2,800 gigatons. Oh, so we can only burn, uh, sorry, 560 gigatons. My apologies. 860 um, allowance, 560 we can still burn is 2,800 gigatons in the ground. That means we can't burn 2,300 gigatons. But this oil, coal, and gas is on the balance sheet. If you can't take it out of the ground, then it doesn't really have any value. That woke up a lot of investors. So, so basically, I'm investing in something based on you know, assets in the ground that might not be able to take out. That's a problem. If we look at the money flows in the, in the liquid space and stocks and bonds, I mean, ESG has just gone through the roof. And now Asia is starting to wake up to this significantly. So it's been consistent, consistently, year in, year out, money flows going to this. There's nearly no fund manager that doesn't have some type of ESG product. You see it in the green bonds, also dramatic growth in green bonds. The pandemic is only stimulating that even more. However, if you believe these figures of $30, $35 $30, $35 trillion dollars of money going into is it impact, why do we have so many problems? Climate change destruction, biodiversity loss, water shortage, food shortage, health crisis, income inequality, pollution, threats of war, and now the pandemic, where we've had all this money going to make the world better. So is it that the work that money is not actually going in, is the definition wrong? are we measuring it incorrectly Um, I think basically the the problem with ESG which i have come come to realize is that many people see it as a fitness club and everybody wants a membership card to the fitness club but nobody wants to go and get on the machines to lose weight Uh, so yes you will have you know, this is kind of going slower in the wrong direction because the methodology that is used is not what the company does, it's how it reports. So who scores very high? Companies that are environmentally destructive or health-wise quite destructive, BP shell CO2 intensivity, or uh, PepsiCo diabetes, or Unilever, processed food. They all score extremely high on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. But it's going slower in the wrong direction because we're not measuring uh, at all. Uh, I think we need a much more radical, dramatic, Oops, not working. Yeah, sorry, a bit. Okay. Perhaps we need a dramatic radical change, a moonshot, uh, which is what we're, we're pushing for because there are so many opportunities at scale. And personally, I'm not really sure and I don't really believe that we're going to create an economy based on well-being by shifting assets from BP to Cisco. Uh, most of the world is not on the stock market, a very small number of companies. and The primary market is not really that large, the secondary market. Very big I think we have to look at other strategies and looking at alternative investments as a way of addressing climate risk and the the reality check is that the ones doing the most are the least so unfortunately people believe the press releases that the big asset managers are pushing out we're doing this we're doing that we're going to suck out all the CO2 out of the world but it's really about what they do not a single U.S. asset manager signed the Montreal pledge. Not even Al Gore and David Blood. They didn't sign the Montreal pledge. asked you, okay, you know, uh, if you're doing ESG or sustainable investment, you know, what is your carbon risk? And uh, if you're not going to be transparent about that, but you push out all these press releases, it's meaningless. And on the other side, the ones doing the least, they talk the most. That's what we're seeing constantly nonsensical press releases that don't really mean anything. If you're not allocating money, serious money to this, and you're just ticking a box, or you're doing ESG engagement by talking to a company to try to change behavior, and then claiming your whole portfolio is an ESG compliant fund, you're not really moving the needle. So it's fine if you want to be part of the club, but if you really want to lose weight, you have to do some work. Look at the Shared Action Report, they ranked 75 of the world's largest asset managers. And their approach to the responsible investment, it was quite pathetic. How so many of them scored so badly because they're just using the, the kind of, uh, the, I want to be part of the club, so we'll say we're doing EST, but what is it? Is it Coke Light? Is it Coke Classic? You know, Is it really making a difference? You know, are you doing ESG just to be part of the club? So you're saying you're doing engagement or you're limiting certain companies. Um, it, they have, Many of them, particularly the ones talking about, have a terrible record. Very, very few scored well. So uh, either, either our approach has been flawed, which I believe it has, uh, and we need to take a different approach. So, but we do see at the same time so much activity in in the ESG direction, even though I find it flawed, as well as the alternative space. And the main reason is that carbon is a cost now. At the same time, millennials should be receiving close to forty one, well, maybe it went down a bit because of the pandemic, forty one trillion dollars in assets from the from their their parents and the families in the next 25 years. That's a tremendous, and they're very keen on sustainable investment. The greatest drivers for the financial sector, which they're not really addressing, is demand from clients like millennials or others, and talent. They're losing their best people because they're best people who have enough money now don't want to stay at a financial institution that is not seriously committed to sustainability. And you're seeing this. So what you have left are what we say in front the functioneers, the civil servants, but not the, not the ones with great talent, unfortunately. I know I'll get a lot of nasty comments, but I don't mind. Uh, solutions are in vast abundance. We're seeing a paradigm shift in sustainable investment, particularly on the illiquid side. People are looking, how do I decarbonize um, my portfolio, and how will it impact in infrastructure? Here are six very simple ways of decarbonizing portfolios that have nothing to do with stocks and bonds. The public transport infrastructure worldwide has to raise $2,300 billion a year, every year, going up. It's, many of them are double A rated public private partnerships. They do simple debt. It's a simple way of decarbonizing your portfolio at scale, not big technology risks. Massive opportunities there. When was the last time any institutional investor said we should really do a public transport infrastructure strategy? Uh, or community banks in the US, a $2.5 trillion industry, uh, almost 98% of all the banks are community banks. They do not do any of the, nonsensical um, activity of the collateralized debt obligation. The secondary market of development finance institutions, fuel-free energy or renewable energy, the social stock exchange, second-generation engagement. There are so many ways of integrating sustainability in your portfolio without going more slowly in the wrong direction in the public side. If you look at real estate, the Empire State Building, great example. The owner of the Empire State Building, Anthony Milton, was not a sustainability fan, was not. But he did the math. He did the largest green retrofit in the world $525 million. And reduce energy, reduce CO2, reduce water, was a better place to work. The ventilation was better, and they raised the price of rentals significantly and ultimately sold the, the company. And uh, for a lot of money green real, estate, green real estate is ideal because with stocks and bonds and ESG maybe the share price will go up Maybe it won't but the minute that you do a green retrofit or build a building that's carbon zero You see immediately the difference energy massive amounts of money m- money going into Renewable energy or clean tech mainly because the price is so low solar has come down so much. It's becoming a commodity uh, wind, geothermal, biomass, tidal will start coming on stream, massive ways of allocating money and retooling our industry. The next steps, we have the greatest opportunity in the history of mankind in spite of the pandemic. We need to go to zero emission for real estate, we should be putting our money into public transport infrastructure, fuel-free energy, carbon sequestration and blue carbon or red plus, I won't get into it too much, I'm happy to answer the questions later, invest in the two largest employer employment sectors in the world, which is food and social environment and hospitality. So small-scale agriculture accounts for about 1.1 uh, billion employees, hospitality about 330 million. It dwarfs anything in the tech sector. Water, affordable healthcare, climate resilience living ways. So when people say, well, there's nothing to invest in, I don't know what neighborhood you're looking at, but there is plenty to invest in. And it doesn't have to be an engagement policy with a company that's doing less good or basically trying to invest in companies that are, you know, that, that are really carbon intensive or socially, environmentally destructive, but they might be less destructive than their peers. There's many, many other ways, particularly in the alternative investment space. So, the financial sector are basically hunters. What we need, we need to take a farming approach. We need to take a much longer approach to the investment strategy uh, because we've farmed enough. What can you do? Basically, to paraphrase Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. My time is up and I'm happy to answer any questions, and I think I
0: stayed within the time that was asked. Robert, yes, my apologies, yes, and you stayed well within time. That was very (laughs) admirably done there. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, I was interested to see you talking about uh, Carbon Tracker. I don't know if you're aware, but Long Finance had quite an interesting uh, role in Carbon Tracker uh, Mm -hmm. at the time that it was uh, formed. uh, uh, We started a project in 2006 which was entitled Burn It All, and we, we came up with some slightly different numbers than you did. Um, our numbers uh, th- were, were based in PPM, uh, but exactly the same result. We sort of said, well, if you burnt everything, you wound up with 1,200 parts per million. You know, you could argue that uh, 550 is horrible, 650 is sudden death, 750 you don't even want to think about. And that was before tar sands, that was before shale uh so yeah it was quite an interesting uh study for us and we were delighted to be there so thanks for mentioning them
1: did, now did, we've got did, a little... you, did you uh did did the financial sector pick up your study
0: oh very much so very much so in okay. fact uh yeah we, we were doing that mark Campanali was there i shared a lot of that uh with andy haldane this is before mark carney arrived i, I know andy was uh w- w- was very sympathetic to the argument uh and of course the argument as the bank of england took it was much more about financial stability. What happens if everybody wakes up and says, "Hey, hang on, I can only burn 20% of what I've currently got at full value." What's that going to do? Uh, so it was a very interesting, uh, a very interesting point in time.
1: Uh, uh, was there pushback from the oil sector or the coal sector about not really
0: uh, facts oh. are facts? Uh, in effect uh, the initial work was done with BP, believe it or not. In fact, it started oh. because I was sitting there chatting with the head of BP Risk, a dear friend of mine, oh, okay. Jan Peter Olsen, and JP and I uh, were just throwing a, throwing an idea around. And I said, why don't you shut yourselves down if you care so much about the planet? And JP said, that oh, wouldn't make any difference. And I said, really? And so we both went and did our numbers. The next day we came back. And I think if BP shut down, it would adjust by one and one and a half to PPM at the, at that time. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then we went immediately the other way around to to look at where the assets were and went, oh, my gosh, uh, this is just uh, an incongruity, a paradox. Anyway, uh, we've got a lot of questions here. Uh, it's not, not okay. for me. Um, you've really uh, got things here. The first one, I, I think I'm just going to ask these uh, oddly in order. They all seem to make a lot of sense, so I'm going to kick off, if I could, with, um, with all due respect, you know where this is going now, uh, but I think it's a good question. With all due respect, the justification for ESG here presented is a repeat of Malthusian the, method, sorry, the <coughs> Malthusian argument that humanity is running out of resources. Has that not Been disproved time and again through technological progress and common sense driving to economic efficiency. What do you think?
1: Uh, Yes, I mean everybody said that there would be a um, uh, that peak oil was over and now the world is glutting in oil. That that's true, Um, but in certain say situations where we cannot make. Product like water you can only convert it from salt to sweet and there's very little sweet water and as people move from one to two Meals a day and 70% of the water is for agriculture So I would say yes until now we've been we've been pretty lucky in adapting but I'm not saying that to do um, sustainable investment only because of Commodity use that's one of the drivers that the investment committee, that the investment world is using. I'm basically saying what we've always said in 25 years, we need to create an economy based on well-being, where it works for all. You see the the cost of the pandemic. You know, this is the perfect example of having a society that is not in balance, that doesn't use its resources properly, that doesn't have an infrastructure, for healthcare that is going bankrupt, you see in the United States. So I never said that, um, that the whole driver of ESG is just a resource efficiency. For some people, it's basically a public relations issue. For others is that they want to create an economy based on well-being. For others, they want to be part of the club, and by the next gen, they don't want to invest in companies that are environmentally or socially destructive. There are a lot of reasons for for, um, for calling investing 2.0. Commodity use is not the only one. It's one. It's what I was showing. That was one of the drivers that some investors are using as a reason to invest in resource efficiency. Okay. Uh,
0: another another point here: uh, investment into public transport infrastructure usually needs government subsidy to operate. Could this uh, really be a feasible or a credible investment?
1: Well, it's been going on for a year, for decades. I mean, UITP, which represents 1,600, 1,700 in the, uh, companies. I think London borrowed, what was it, 10, 12 billion pounds to renovate the public transport system for the Olympic Games. But most of these, uh, these uh, public transport systems are public-private partnerships. Um, they're borrowing debt they're just doing it in an inefficient way it's doing they're doing it locally uh, they they came to us years ago and asked could we are there other ways of raising money for public transport infrastructure until then it was never really sexy you know because we people could make more money other ways. but now with negative interest getting any yield with little risk becomes very very sexy Uh, And we said go to asset owners because their model was the local public transport system would go to the bank that they used before, they would cut and paste the bond that they put out for the previous bond and go back to the same investors, add a few million to the bill, uh, and do it that way. And we said you have a very simple debt issue, you should be just creating a, a global uh connectivity platform to reach asian investors or latin american investors if it's a european so uh, there's there's there are many many ways of doing this and we've tried with many times speaking to UITP and its members and even their own members said they're right this is an ideal way of decarbonizing portfolios but it was never sexy you know everybody loved these sexy hedge fund managers from connecticut
0: well, let's uh, let's turn our attention to another uh sector of investors um there's a lovely little mini letter to you here so uh, it's from peter J. R. ellen and i'll just read it clearly uh, dear robert family offices and ultra high net worth individuals generally allocate amounts of 1 million to 20 million as initial investors rarely larger some amounts of 100 million plus what do you wish to see from the family office and ultra high net worth communities particularly given the substantial interest from next generation investors, Peter?
1: Well, we've been working on that for several years. Um, I always tell people, you know, because anytime times um, an ESG or impact investment fund manager or company comes out with a climate solution or whatever, the first thing you do, let's go rush to the pension funds. And I tell them that is an utter waste of time particularly if you're going to APG or PGM, the Dutch pension funds, because unless you're tier one and unless you're plain vanilla, you'll never get a dime. But they will say, Michael, please come over. Tell me all about it. It's fascinating. And you'll spend a year and a half making out on the couch, but never having sex. And after a year and a half said, Michael, I'm really sorry, but the investment committee said no, but let's keep in touch. And this gentleman is right. There is a massive Number of high net worth of family offices, if you ever want to have a real idea of the scale, just go to the Uron Report. I don't know if you know Euron Report, H-U-R-U-N. So they list the wealthy families of the world. Differences is they start at one billion, nothing under one billion. And that list goes on and on and on and on and on forever, all the way to Jeff Bezos at the top. So you're right. We've been working with quite a few family offices. You're right that the ticket sizes might be smaller, but there's a lot of family offices, and they're willing to because they have small bureaucracies. They are much more willing to give take give a chance. We had a, a the the person whose grandfather invented the espresso machine yesterday. Uh, family office sold the company. Has a big family office investment in impact and does. Um, direct investment, eighty investments that he's done. So we have been focusing a lot of shifting our attention away from the larger uh, pension funds and more to the family office because of the speed which they can do. and it it is an, it's a great strategy. The challenge is there's no there's not the transparency that a pension fund has. If you look up a pension fund, you can see how much assets they have, who's the boss, who are the people that work, for, they have a website. Family offices, many of them don't even have a website. They don't publish the AUMs. So access is the challenge. Convincing is very easy. But people with lots of money, like, you know, uh, the, the owner of LVMH, he doesn't have the sign on the side of his house. Hi, I have billions. Come visit me. So access is the challenge with that group. But convincing is very easy, and it's a very, 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 uh, interesting group to approach, and they're definitely moving significantly in this direction.
0: A bit of a follow-up then, um, uh, also from Peter. But where do you see the growth of impact investing as an alternative investment category at the institutional level? You know, what, what's going to galvanize participation so that it's seen to be similar to do I, do, you know, you opening? Do I do VC, private equity, hedge funds?
1: Well, they, I mean, a lot of the pension funds, have uh, they they have some restrictions. They do have restrictions by the central bank of where they can invest. I remember there were some Dutch pension funds that got a letter from the central bank because they thought, okay, let's start investing in forest. And the central bank said, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not liquid enough. Get out of that. Um, so I do understand there are some uh, restrictions, but until now, if you look at where they have invested, they've invested with the tier one fund managers, you know, uh, the RISE fund, $2 billion uh, RISE fund, which is not an impact fund, but it talks about being an impact fund. So the ones that have the tier one pedigree, they're getting, you know, what is it, 10% of the, those PE fund managers are getting 90% of the money, and then 10% of the rest of the fund are trying to fight over 90% of the rest of the fund managers Are trying to fight effort uh, ten. I I see I hear lots of chatter of that we want to do this, but they're too small. We now have the small fund. We'll do that. It still remains quite a challenge. And one of the best sources is the EU. The EU has seven hundred to eight hundred billion euro in investment money available for. Uh, funds and direct investments and another 80 plus billion in uh, innovation Uh, so there are other sources than the pension funds because traditionally the pension funds unless you're have all the gray hair like me and have been in the space a long time and have a long track record it's hard to get uh, get them we're working on a a project of connecting very large family offices and sovereign funds to address Uh, climate. Uh, I think the only very large fund manager is a 2021 or 23 billion euro fund from the German government that has created a fund to decommission uh, the nuclear power plants and they will invest with other fund managers but they have to determine how we're going to decide that. Uh, Until now I haven't seen a lot of, I haven't seen the pension funds really willing to do Significant innovation, uh, or invest with innovative uh, funds. Um, it's st- always, you know, Carlyle, KKR. I remember there was a, pri- a private bank, the Amer- uh, ABN, and they came, called, contacted me, says, we're setting up a new vehicle, and we want to invest in really cool fund managers in the impact space at scale. So we showed them a fund manager in, in New York, one billion dollars and it's a very successful team and they were going to invest in uh in family businesses that have integrated sustainability so they meant everything and then i contacted them about three four months later and said oh no no we're not going to do that we're just going to invest in kkr and i thought well why does the family need you to invest in kkr it's a listed company yeah. in the Netherlands. Yes
0: okay uh we're uh, if, we're gonna have to speed up the pace of answering a little okay, bit here if you, you don't mind uh, due to time um and okay. I've got three kind of final questions all circling around the issue of measurement um and i I'm gonna kind of meld them if i can uh sure. one person is asking you know who manages the s g score so we're back to juvenile and you know who watches mm-hmm. the watchers and all of that um mm-hmm and i think that i'll take alongside another one which is the big tech track behaviors uh, of individuals infringing on individual property render our lives transparent Uh, can't we apply similar tactics but directed towards companies to bring transparency to practices uh, Mm -hmm. to tackle greenwashing and press releases and things like that so uh, maybe a minute and a half on just your thoughts on how we're doing that type of measurement currently uh,
1: we're doing better but not good enough the old system was co- what we call the OJ Simpson method so the old system was self-assessment and control by ignorance companies would fill in the form it's a glove fits <laughs> That would go to the research provider and then they would check it by looking on the internet are there any news items about this and I remember one one rating agency would actually try to Connect with the Catholic priests in the Philippines through individuals by finding out what was talked about in the confectional about the company making clothing. I think it's very hard to know what it's like to work within a company if you're not working there um, so I think that will always remain uh, a challenge. I know one true story, one rating agency that indirectly was using. Um, uh, kind of clairvoyance to put their hands on clothing made in certain factories to determine if that clothing was made in pain and suffering. So, yeah, I guess there's lots of different ways and everybody wants, who's the 10 best, who's the 10 worst? They want something simple and I think it's rather complex, uh, but I there must be better ways for companies to be transparent. I would just like the methodology to be based on what the companies do and not what they report. And I would also like them to start looking at taxes that which companies are not paying taxes or avoiding taxes. Um, I just find it fascinating. The whole pandemic brought out, hey, Branson's registered in a tax haven and now he wants government money. And France and Poland and Denmark said no government money if you are not if you're in a tax haven. So I think it's a work in progress, but we're not there yet.
0: Interesting. Uh, we have a uh, next week. Chris Yap is doing a, quite a lengthy post on pamphleteers about uh, exactly that uh, tax and the implications of it, and the the, the Danish uh, response. There, um, we we had a an interesting question here for uh, on. Uh, the uh, writer says, I I agree we do need a radical change in measurement to say an environmental return on investment that's directly tied to financial metrics. Uh, But what proof do investors currently seek that the information they're given is de-risking investments uh, from an ESG perspective when scope and boundary of information is often too narrow?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on the investor. Some investors. Uh, want to be passive, lazy investors, but just want to have—you know—I don't know if you remember there was a, this this crisis with the pension funds. They were discovering that they were investing in cluster bomb manufacturers. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so there was this documentary: pension funds investing in cluster bomb manufacturers. So the amount of money committed to ESG in two years went up a factor of ten from 46 billion euro in one country in the Netherlands to about 480 billion, which is not possible if you're doing it properly. So what they say, okay, they kicked out the cluster bomb manufacturer, now claim the whole portfolio, the whole 5 billion, even though we only had 3 million in cluster bomb manufacturers, we're claiming the whole 5 billion is an ESG fund. So it's like, you know, you were 200 kilos and now you're putting on a nice coat, and you're skinny. Um, that's, that's unfortunate because do you know how many cluster bomb manufacturers there are in the world and how many are listed on the stock market and the total market cap of these guys? It's nothing but it's a, you know it's something that you know emotes a behavior in in certain people that they want to be associated with that. So I agree that we need a better system and we need what have, what is important to measure. Uh, and that makes it easier for people. But until now, most of the pension funds, most of the institutional investors did this impact on that. Mainly it was either for risk or avoid bad publicity, but not to fundamentally create an economy based on well-being. They were not interested, that was not their mission. That was not their mission. If it was, they would take a different strategy.
0: Robert, um, I I could actually, uh, maybe we'll have a phone call afterwards. uh, uh, Some interesting points here about externalities and how we incorporate them and how far ESG needs to go before we don't need ESG, so to speak. Uh, So a lot lot of good stuff there that we could continue. But sadly, we've come to the end of our time. uh, And I I think you win the Michael Minelli Award for the most slides gone through. You'll you'll need to take a break uh, of your finger. Uh, So well done, you. And on behalf of the audience, I'll give you a a virtual round of applause. Just bear with us. for. Oh, no, it's been really good to have you. And uh, I just uh, point out to those who are on the line that this is, as you know, part of a lengthy series of webinars we have on a whole variety of financial services topics. Uh, Tomorrow, we have a particularly interesting one on TRIZ. TRIZ is the russian engineering approach to solving problems a toolkit of problem solving and karen gad is going to be coming in from oxford creativity to talk to us about how that applies to uh both technology and financial services firms so that should be fascinating and interesting but it remains uh for me uh to join with all of you and thanking robert for a great presentation and thanking all of you for being online and we look very much forward to seeing you in the it's heavy lifting,
1: uh, but congratulations and thank you very much for having me. Most so well. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Stay well. Bye, all.